You're listening to The Filter Podcast. This is Aisha Downton and Vicki Diaz Camacho. Welcome back. So we've got a really good one for you all today, a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and that is parenting and education. Now, full disclosure, I am not a parent, but have interviewed many this year. The common thread to all of their stories is that people don't know just how difficult it's been for them. School administrators are stressed and scrambling to find ways to patch up an already weak education support system. We asked Superintendent Mark Bedell, who leads the Kansas City Public School District, how this year's been for him. It was very difficult. It was hard. And for me as a parent that has a partner at home with my wife to help, we both had difficulty because we both have full-time jobs. So Aisha, you're a stepmom and recently had your first child this year. So mm-hmm. how is life this past year, really? Woo! <laughs> it's definitely been a whirlwind of emotions. I've been at my happiest while at the same time feeling at my loneliest. I am the bonus mom to an amazing seven-year-old and I have been for the past four years. When it comes to step parenting, you never really know what challenges you may encounter. So transitioning to homeschooling really didn't become that much of a challenge at first because I was already used to circumstances changing. But as virtual learning grew from two weeks to the rest of the school year and then some, things got complicated. I found myself multitasking to the extreme, taking on too much honestly, working from home as a social media manager while barely managing my daughter's schoolwork. And on top of that, I was pregnant. Aisha wasn't alone. Part of what this year showed us is that parents haven't been as supported as they could be. And some kids weren't either. Um, it was kind of difficult because I couldn't really figure out how to get into my Zooms and it was hard to get scheduling to everybody. At usual school, I got to stay at school for seven hours and at virtual school, I just had to stay here for four hours. We're trying to do our best. It's kind of hard to like get everything done super fast. This month, we wanted to learn more about what happens when kids and parents aren't given the tools they need to succeed. As far as we know, the effects range between the social and educational. Here's a five-year-old, Hazel, telling us in her own words how school changed for her. We all can't get hugs or play with each other or share toys. How do you feel about that? I'm sad because we don't get to hug each other. That's Annie Watson's daughter. She's a parent and has worked in early childhood education for years. When we talk about this past year, a lot of people will bring up how the pandemic and quarantining changed the relationship in their lives. Um, I, for one, will say that it, it definitely challenged me as a mom, a new mom at that. Um, and things were getting super messy for folks with younger kids, mm-hmm. navigating homeschooling, explaining the pandemic to them, explaining this deadly virus to them. It was just a crazy time. So to make sense of all of that, we have Annie Watson here today, who is a former early childhood educator and a parent of four. Welcome, Annie. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So first, can you tell us how old are your kids? Give us a little 
a picture. Yeah, super exciting. So my baby, our last baby, two-year-old, oh. the youngest in our house. I have a five-year-old entering kindergarten next week, a eight-year-old, and my oldest is 11. Nice. Yeah. All in elementary school, or mm. except for the two-year-old. <laughs> yes, and my oldest is in technically middle school now. So we have a range in ages. And that's exactly why we invited you, because you can provide so much context as a mother and also early childhood educator. That's what you did before, right? Yes, I was an early childhood educator for several years and then moved on to nonprofit and uh, have supported families and young children in lots of ways and now an, um, a national early childhood consultant. Let's talk about the kids because Missouri was already had a bad track record with early child education. Can you shed some light on what you've seen before and then how that's, you know, influenced what's happening now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Kansas City specifically, I think, um, you know, most all of our neighborhoods are considered child care deserts, which means there are more children than the number of available seats for early childhood care and education, birth to age five. And so what that means for families and for parents is that uh, if you need care for your child, you may not find it and you might be on wait lists for a really, really long time. So it makes it really challenging for families who are trying to go to school, trying to work, trying to navigate what to do and how to support their young children mm -hmm. from birth until kindergarten. Mm -hmm. The early childhood sector, it's even more difficult to run a childcare business, mm -hmm. to uh, be an early childhood education professional. And so we see um, kind of a disproportionate impact um, in neighborhoods and areas that already lacked access to high quality early childhood education. What are some of those barriers, though? Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So, I mean, there are barriers to systemic barriers to why there isn't more child care. There are really differing views between uh, policy and decision makers. So, you know, the, the reality is that early care and education is really critical infrastructure for our economy. And I think while some folks recognize that, that's not widespread or common understanding or acceptance. Mm -hmm. Early childhood is typically taken or is seen as kind of a long-term return on investment and not a particular need right now. And so COVID has really illuminated, I think, uh, for some at least, and particularly for families, mm -hmm. how uh, critical the need for childcare is right now. About one in four childcare centers closed during the pandemic. Meanwhile, the number of homeschooling households doubled to 11%. Childcare assistance and income is also a barrier that people may not even realize. Those who receive governmental childcare assistance have to think about the income guideline to receive such assistance, meaning they have to decline a growth in income just to make sure that their children have a place to go to while they're at work. Here's Paku Her, who works at Parents Together, a nonprofit news organization that covers the latest in research, policies, and the trends impacting kids and their families. She explains how this year shone a light on inequities in parenting and childcare. I've talked with, certainly through my work, um, we have heard from moms and uh, who are really from all over the country who have talked about how much they want to be able to work but they can't because the demands of childcare and the homeschooling are too great. It's just untenable to manage the family life that has to be managed for so many of these folks and still be able to go to work and you know, working in places with employers who don't have any flexibility for their employees. 
essentially everyone was at home for the past school year. All of the kids had to virtually learn or parents somehow had to figure out how to educate their um, youngsters that aren't in elementary school yet. So did that, do you think that that kind of leveled the playing field? Because those who didn't have to worry about early childhood education were now in the same boat of those who might have been on those wait lists or couldn't afford to send their kids to pre-K. Will that affect policies in the future, in your opinion? I would hope so. As we approach a new school year where more children are back in physical locations, Mm -hmm. I think we're just going to see not only the disparity in the kind of resources and access to supports that families have had in the last year, but I think we'll also see a really strong disparity and inequity in the way that we talk about children as Mm. they re-enter the school year. I think what's truer than families having some sort of awakening or policymakers having some sort of awakening about the need for childcare, I think what's more true is that families have been empowered in the last year to make decisions and have some agency around their children's education that they didn't necessarily feel that they had prior. Even with stopgap measures, kids, families, and educators were left fending for themselves. Paku explained what Congress did this last year and what's still needed today. We need to be investing in not just making sure that there are subsidies and child care supports for families that need to pay for child care, but that we're also supporting the entire child care industry. That means making sure that workers are paid because many of those workers are also moms. Many of those workers are also women of color. Many of those workers in many cases are also themselves low-wage workers because we don't invest in early childhood care and in child care. All of these issues just became impossible to not see because we are in a time of crisis as a country and in a time of crisis as families and as communities. It's impossible not to see these things. You've talked about families of color and things that they have gone through this whole year. Can you kind of paint that picture again of, you know, things that you would hope for when they return to school, like safe spaces? I mean, there's a lot there when you go to school. There is a lot there. I mean, and you know, I'm a non-Black person of color, so I identify as, as Asian American. I think our school system as a whole is still trying to figure out how to serve Um, black and brown and other children of color really well. And so I think the opportunity that exists this year is for uh, school leaders and school administrators in particular who are responsible for cultivating the kind of culture um, and environment in which teachers and educators and professionals who interact with children can do these things. But being able to to dismantle and uh, to reevaluate the ways in which we're implementing curriculum. There's an opportunity to deepen our understanding of what learning really means and what the purpose of schooling really is. You said your oldest is transitioning from elementary school to middle school. So that's kind of a big step for her to go from virtually learning in elementary school Mm -hmm. and then now physically going to middle school. So how do you, as a parent, how do you prepare her for that transition since she wasn't able to physically go to school last year to conclude her elementary school year? It's been, it's actually been a real challenge. It's Mm -hmm. been, it's been, I think the greatest challenge. There, there've been lots of opportunities in the last, really the last three years, but particularly through the pandemic, we've had lots of really challenging conversations, both initiated by myself, by family, by circumstances, by by my children. Preparing the kids to re-enter schooling has been its 
own particular journey Mm -hmm. that I don't know that I necessarily have the skill or capacity (laughs) to do and I'm just doing anyway just like every other parent so yeah I think for for my oldest we every summer when we think about going back to school Mm -hmm. there is the inevitable sort of like three weeks before it dawns on me that we need to start limiting uh, screen time Mm -hmm. particularly true (laughs) right now and moving back the bedtime gradually so that we're better positioned to be able to go to bed on time without iPads in our hands and wake Mm -hmm. up bright and early uh, making breakfast all of those kind of skills that we want the kids to have like on the first day of school we start working on several weeks before and so this year was really no different but in addition to that I also recognized there was a level of like social emotional skill that the Mm. kids had been so out of practice with that Mm -hmm. they had already um, kind of they were having a hard time envisioning what the school year was going to look Mm. like my children's ability to forecast what it's going to be like to be in relationship with other children, they just can't do. And the brother-sister dynamic is uh, very different than the school (laughs) environment. So they're all really excited for a change. I don't blame them. but. But yeah, I think their their capacity to be in relationship with other humans, I think, has been, that will be really interesting. I'm wondering, since there were so many disparities within how the virtual learning was delivered and implemented in each household, will no child left behind, like, will that idea still be able to stand? I mean, listen, there was a lot of innovation that happened for for teachers to be able to do whatever it is that they did to whatever Mm -hmm. degree that they did and school systems to support them however much they were able to. That is true. But what we didn't see is kind of a fundamental disruption of what wasn't working. Mm -hmm. At least not in all spaces, not consistently, not uniformly, like not across the board. And so I think because of that, the conversation is still going to be focused on learning loss, which is this fundamental misassumption that children, some children had access to high quality experiences and they were able to learn mm-hmm. and other children didn't have access and therefore they didn't learn. And I think that's the wrong story to tell. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly the wrong story to tell for families and for children. The reality is that children were learning, right? They were surviving a global pandemic just as we were. And there's plenty of opportunities for them to learn. So what tips do you have for parents and educators? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I mean, (laughs) what I would say to fellow parents and families, really the grownups that surround children, you know, I I would encourage everybody to the extent that they have the capacity and ability to really lean into what their family and what their children need Mm -hmm. um, and advocate as much as they can to their schools for whatever that is and what it looks like. But I do think we're in a critical moment where schools need to listen to parents more. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a key piece is you know families and parents in particular are children's first and best teachers that is truth and while we may not have all felt very successful this last year there have been lots of tears and yelling in my house and i'm sure in households (laughs) across the country and around the world really the school system is there to support me and to support my family just as it should be there to support other children and their families and 
I totally love and respect all of our educators and our school administrators and leaders and the really tough job that they have um, and will volunteer as much as humanly possible by all the things off the Amazon wish list that I can muster. But the reality is that we, we have to center the children and the families who are raising them recognizing the opportunities that I have to safeguard uh, my children's experience in school. So giving ourselves grace as parents and I think as educators too. I'd like to send well wishes to all the parents like myself, to staff and the kiddos. The future of education may still be hazy, but we've got this because we've already got a year and then some under our belts. Listen and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have thoughts about the show, tweet us at Flatland Casey. Thanks for listening. The Filter Podcast is a production of Flatland at Kansas City PBS. This episode was written and produced by Aisha Downton, Vicky Diaz Camacho, and Nina Rao. Music by First Com. Production support by Felicia Diaz, Ana Parra, and PJ Kelly at The Post House. Original music by Asia Berlin and Primary Color Music. Additional thanks to our communications and engagement manager, Tyler Peterson.